So my daughter uh, Rebecca has this tutoring company where she and a number of uh, university students that she's hired, they, they tutor uh, elementary school, high school kids in English and math and this kind of thing. And when she's working with uh, her students, many of them are, um, have come to Canada, immigrated here. Their parents don't, uh, many of the parents don't speak English or they don't speak English very well. So when Rebecca is teaching these young children to read, she teaches them uh, through phonics. So she's, it's not just simply using uh, the mem memorization of the words and, and learning to read by memory, but she's trying to get these young children to understand the phonics because uh, being new to this country, if you don't understand how the language works, if you don't understand how the letters work and the combinations and the sounds that they make, um, then just learning to, learning to read by sight is not going to be very helpful. When we come to uh, the book of Romans, and we've been studying it chapter by chapter, it's as though the Apostle Paul is trying to help us really grasp the grammar of the gospel. And so he goes to great lengths to really tease things apart so that we don't simply look down and recognize words in a broad sense. Oh, there's that word justification. I keep seeing it. What he ends up doing, in, and particularly what we look at today in chapter 5, is it's like he's, he's working very hard to make sure we understand the phonics of the gospel. He's like, I want to break these thoughts down, and I want to tease them out. That's why Romans isn't, you know, a paragraph long. Hey, Romans, love you, uh, heard about you, want to come preach to you, see you soon. It's why he breaks out these big themes like justification so that we can really understand how it is um, that the gospel is beautiful. And so this morning we're going to look at uh, chapter 5, uh, again, as we move through um, the book of Romans, today's focus will be on this word justification, which is core to understanding the grammar of the gospel. And it's, it's uh, not only so that we understand the mechanics of it, so that we leave this morning and say, oh, that was really helpful, and now I understand some greater nuance of the scripture in an academic kind of a way, but because th the more we understand the goodness of God's grace, and our minds can really revel in the, the, the good thing that he has done, the Holy Spirit who is within us really rejuvenates our hearts to enjoy and live with a, with a deeper sense of conviction and joy about what the good news is for us and means for us. So Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses this morning. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more then, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, 
We also rejoice in God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whom we now have received reconciliation. This is God's word. So the doctrine of justification, as we unpack it, we will see, is not just for future benefit. It's for right here, right now, today, in your life, benefit. So this morning, as we unpack this text, uh, I'm going to ask two questions. That's right, two. Because normally we do three, and then one week we randomly did four, and I just had to restore balance to the homiletical force. So we're back on track with two. Um, the, fir- the first question is, what does justification mean for us? We're going to spend not a lot of time there, but we're going to spend most of our time on what it gives to us. So the first question is, what does it mean for us? And the second question is, what does it give to us? So let's look at what justification means for us. It is, and you hear us talk about this a lot at Redeemer during our confession, justification is, this is what Paul is going to great lengths to explain, it is a one-time act. It is a one-time act by Christ at the cross that removes our guilt of sin. And we are justified by Christ's perfect work, not our ongoing work. That is what it is. That's what Paul is going to great lengths to Explain when Susan is teaching justification to the children. She says it like this. She'll say she'll say to the kids kids This is what justification means. It's justified Never sinned and it's justified always obeyed That's we trying to get them to understand how God relates to us because of this one-time act of great grace And it comes to us and Paul's been building for five chapters and last week in chapter four We looked at this That it comes to us by grace. It comes to us by faith And, um, you know, there was a really dark time in church history when what I'm saying right now was totally lost. It was such a dark point in the 1500s where the prevailing teaching throughout the whole church was that justification was not a one-time act. It was an ongoing work. The church was in the 1500s, this is why the Protestant, one of the reasons the Protestant Reformation happened, was greatly what was being taught was no Christ started something, you continue it. Christ made something possible. Christ's obedience made something possible. Your obedience makes it actual. And and Luther and friends were like, well, hold on a second. Now everybody knows about the Reformation in 1517 and 95 theses get nailed to the Wittenberg door. But you know, the year before that, nobody talks, well, I shouldn't say nobody. Uh, Not many people are aware that the year before that, Luther wrote 97 theses largely about justification didn't get any traction because the 95 theses had to do with the indulgences and people really committed to their money and they're like whoa this is an outrage the year before it was 97 theses on justification i'm just kidding that was a joke by the way people are like what is that really what happened that is what happened but the reason the 95 theses got traction is because the gutenberg press got involved and it went medieval viral so the 97 theses didn't okay so Uh, Just in case a historian catches me after the service and says, that's not how it happened. Okay, so so that was the prevailing teaching. It was was hugely problematic. And the the reformers were like, no, we're not trying, this reformation is not about trying to do anything new. This reformation or, or reformed theology is about recovering something very old, is what it, it's how they all thought about it. We're not trying to do a new thing here. And so the five solas of the reformation uh, sola is Latin, which is the word that means alone. 
So they would say, sola fide, by faith alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, at the authority of scripture alone, sola Christus, in Christ alone, sola Deo gloria, for, to the glory of God alone. It was their way of kind of trying to encapsulate what justification, you know, one of the things was to encapsulate what justification meant. Christ was sufficient. And so Jesus didn't make something possible that we're making actual. When you look at verse 1, the very first verse, the Apostle Paul comes up by saying what this, what this gives us is peace with God. In other words, he's inferring that nobody's, nobody is neutral before God. He's saying, like, we need peace with God. We are, either, we are either with him as his children or we are against him as his enemies, and those are the options. And that really, as moderns, rubs us the wrong way. You're like, wow, that is a super strong absolute sta- statement. Isn't there any room for gray area? Can we revisit this theologically? Are we sure? Isn't it only Siths that deal in absolutes? But that's not the theology that you're looking for. So Paul says, we need peace with God. Why is that? The reason is because when two kings both say, this is mine, a war ensues. And in Genesis, that's what happened. God was the creator king over all things. And then our first parents used their free will to decide that they were king. And so now you have two kings claiming the same territory, and now they're at war. That's Genesis 3. Right? In, in the Hebrew language, when the enemy tempts our first parents and he says to Eve, you will be like God. In the Hebrew language, there is no indefinite article. There is no like. It's just, you will be God. So that's the temptation. Be king. So we've had the creator king, and then we're self-proclaimed kings, saying the same area is ours, our hearts and our lives, the earth. And so now... When two kings claim the same area, you have war. So Paul says, we, need, we have been given peace with God, right? This is the benefit of our justification. The gospel announces that what the great king did was he didn't just declare war on us and destroy us in Genesis 4. But what the great king did was he left the comfort and the glory of his own throne to come to save those who rejected him as king. This is what God's great graces looked like since Genesis chapter 3. And so the benefits of our justification of this peace that we have with God, it's not just an eschatological benefit that benefits you and I after we die. The Christian life is not just like, well, you know, hey, it's, life is crazy. What can you do about it? But hey, there's heaven. That's, there's not, that's, that is not a fulfilling, uh, uh, bold and broad and deep understanding of the gospel. And so Paul wants us to understand this, and that's where um, this, the, this text goes so let's spend the rest of our time looking at what it is that this justification gives to us. Right? So if justification is this one-time act of Christ on the cross that removes all of our guilt, which it is, right, leads to this ongoing life of growth and sanctification, beautiful things. But what does it give us? So let's look at it. In verse 2, he starts out by saying it gives us access. Now the Greek word for access could also be translated um, uh, to be brought near and introduced. That's the idea. So when this, so when this word, it's prosagogue, uh, is used in other contexts, sometimes you're introducing somebody to someone else, making a connection so that they have access. So Paul kind of gives, gives this, paints this picture. You know, when um, years ago we, we had a, a friend who uh, played professional football for the Toronto Argonauts. We went to a game with her family. After the game was over, uh, we went down to the barrier where the field was. He's like, come on out. So we all 
me and Susan and the kids hopped over and we went on the field. Now, you can't do that. You'll get thrown out. The security will jump on, top, jump on you. But we could because we had access. Not because of anything that we did, but because of who we knew. And so we're there, and Isaiah and I ran, you know, he was a wee little guy at the time, and we, we ran 100 yards from one end zone to the other, and we're running, he's the 50, the 40, you know, we run the whole end zone. And if there was another little boy, I'm sure there was, because there was thousands of people still in the stadium uh, as it was emptying, uh, if, there, if there was another little boy or girl, and they looked down and they saw Isaiah running d- down the field, and they said, hey, Dad, can I go down and do that? The dad wouldn't have been like, sure, yeah, well, if he can do it, you can do it. The answer is, no, no, you can't do that. I don't know how that little boy got down there, but he didn't get down there because, he, because in and of himself he's allowed to be there. He obviously knows somebody. Please don't go and run on the field. You're going to get in trouble. That's access. That's given here. If you're on holidays and you go over to England, you can't just think to yourself, oh, you know, we should just pop in and see Megan and Harry. I loved her in suits. He seems like a really nice guy. I'd just love to connect. We could maybe have a coffee, exchange cell phone numbers. That way, if I ever have any problems in my life, I can just call up Megan. And with her you know, incredible resources, she could probably help me out. You have no access to Megan and Harry. You've got to know somebody to make that connection. But what we've been given in the gospel is undeserved and unprecedented access to the king of creation so that we can have rest in the here and now in the life in the here and now, because of our God of inexhaustible resource, which, which as, as uh, the Apostle Paul unpacks further, has a tremendous impact uh, in, in the here and now. When you look at uh, verse 2, he goes on to talk about the hope of the glory of God, right? And there's this anticipation of the hope of the glory of God. It's a game changer because hope, I mentioned this last Sunday, but it bears repeating, hope in the Greek the way it's being used here and in the Greek is the word elpis, and it means to have confident certainty. So the way that the apostle is using it is not the way we use it in English. We're like, well, I hope so, and we cross our fingers. But when Paul's like, the hope of glory, the hope of Christ, the hope of this, the hope of that, when you read the New Testament and you see that, what he's saying is elpis, elpis, elpis. We have confident certainty. I'm not wondering about this. Right? There's an empty tomb. Hundreds of people saw the resurrected Christ. The body, Rome never produced the, the body. I saw the resurrected Christ. I'm certain now. That's a, that's a day-to-day game changer. What I saw has changed me forever. Never be the same. That's what he's saying here. This, this tremendous hope that it's giving him this day-to-day benefit because of the access. And you know, because he's got the access, because you and I have the access to God, the more we avail ourselves of this access the more our souls enjoy peace. Our hearts and our minds rest in this hopeful certainty, right? Worship and prayer, gathering together here, gathering in your homes. These spiritual disciplines, these gifts of grace that God has given you for, to, to avail yourself of the access is how he ministers his grace to your heart and to your mind. It's how he changes you and it's how he renews you. There's, there's no, you know, some of us have... Uh, have come out of contexts where many of us have, because I know many of you, have come out of contexts where the spiritual disciplines were framed in such a way that it was, that I, I, it was either button-pushing and lever-pulling to either earn blessings, or it was a way of proving to yourself and everybody else how pious and righteous you were. Many of us have struggled 
Many of us have struggled with spiritual disciplines being prevented that way. And you know what the human reaction is to legalism? is to go into the other ditch of lawlessness. And to go, oh my goodness, I'm so, I'm so thankful that I'm free from the, this you know, crazy command to you know, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. So I know what I'll do. I won't read my Bible and pray every day. No, hold on a minute. Time out. We've, hang on a second. These gifts are how we avail ourselves of access. And some of us need the Spirit to do healing work in our hearts and our lives so that we can think about them and reflect on them in beautiful ways uh, and, and uh, without perhaps the guilt-ridden way they were, they were presented to us in the past. But there's tremendous freedom there as we avail ourselves of these gifts. You're free from, you're free from your past in this way. You're free from being defined by or a slave to your, your failures and your sins. You're free from that. And you're free to be rejuvenated with soul-quieting peace in the present. And you're free to live with hopeful certainty because you know that in the end you're going to be enjoying a life of joy that knows no horizon in the future. So the, this gift of justification, this access that is given, this, this hope, this certain confidence that, is, that uh, has been given to us by God's grace. It brings us into a freedom of how we relate to our past, a freedom of how we relate here in the present, and how we think about the future. Because life is, of course, a complex, a complex paradox of, of joy and pain, right? All of us have joy and pain. All of us have things we can laugh about, things we can cry about. This is why we, uh, you know, I have a theory. It's like, you know, people ask us how we're doing, and it's such a hard question to answer, you know, in passing. Hey, how are you doing? And we say, good. And, uh, and uh, thing, th there are things that are good. There's things that are not good, too. And so my theory is sometimes when, uh, and I'm projecting, because this is what I do, people say, how are you doing? And I'm like, good, 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 good. And the more goods you add on the end, it's like your mind is processing, good, because you did think of one thing that was good. How are you doing? Good, good, yeah, good, good. Things, things are good, things are good. And all those other goods are processing the things that aren't good. And you're evaluating if you have enough time to get into the things that aren't good. Because life is an absolute paradox. Verse 3 says we rejoice in sufferings. In them. Right? Trials, suffering, stress, anxiety. Right in the middle of it. The benefit of justification. Right? Is that God's grace and his presence don't evaporate in hard times. See, the benefit is... God's goodness to you is magnified in hard times. See, he, this is why he's very careful to say it's right in the middle of it. Because life without God, the best shot you have is that your life has to pretty much be devoid of drama. And then the less drama you've got, the more peace you're enjoying. And it's pretty good. So you've got options. You either have to have a life devoid of drama or you have to block out the drama. Or you have to find ways to essentially avoid the drama. So everything you're calling joy is really just an exercise of living from one distraction to the next. So you don't have to come face to face with the very thing that's just going to cause your joy to dissipate like the sun burning the fog away. And so the Apostle Paul says, no, the benefit we have is because of this access, we rejoice right in the middle of our, of our suffering. God's grace doesn't evaporate, it's magnified. His sense of presence in our life doesn't evaporate, it's magnified as we continually turn to him. You know, I've told you this story before, but as I was unpacking verse 3, like it's just, it's so life-changing, I'm never going to forget it, I'm going to mention it. 
again, and it was that I was, when I was in South Sudan and I was speaking on suffering, just like I am this morning to you, and I was talking about the goodness of God's, God's hope and his grace and his strength in our suffering. And you know, I'm outside in the burning hot sun talking to a church about the size of this one, this group here in front of me, mainly women, because many of the husbands had been murdered, many of the sons had been murdered, like just war-torn devastation, this region. And as I was preaching on the suffering, God's grace for us in suffering, this woman in the front just started going, Woo! And she was crying and cheering at the same time. And she was just like, Woo! And I'll never forget it. She was, and she just started stomping her feet and she was like, Yes! That's a point. I know that's not very dignified from where some of you guys have come from, but, but, but reformed is not a personality, so get over it. <laughs> reformed is a is, is way of defining a particular stream of theology, so relax. But anyways, you know, this is what she did. She was like, whoa! And you know, that is the appropriate response to Christ. And I, I, when I say appropriate, I, I, I mean for... It was just life-changing, the way that it was like right in the middle of it. If I could speak her language, if I could have, if, if I could have spoken Aromo and went to her and asked her about her life, I'm not sure how many good things she would have been able to tell me about it. But boy, she has access and she's availing herself of that access. And now in a situation in South Sudan where you have no business screaming and shouting and cheering and stomping your feet and raising your hands, she's doing all of those things because of the goodness of God's grace that is available to us in church, you and I, because of Jesus. When everything is hitting the fan and on fire, we get to, in the middle of our tragedies, turn to him in that. And I tell you, if you don't understand justification as by grace and you understand it as, a, as by works, how will you relate to suffering? How will I relate to suffering? We will relate to it and have a crisis of faith because if we think... In terms of works righteousness, the moment something goes wrong in our life or our body or our mind or our job or our family or something, our first reaction, and here's how you know works righteousness has crept into your heart. Something is wrong with you and your immediate reaction is going to be like, God, what are you doing? Like, well, I don't understand what you're doing. Ergo, look what I'm doing. Like, don't you see what I'm doing? What I'm trying to do? Don't you see who I'm trying to be? The kind of life I'm trying to live? Don't you see what I'm doing? What, what are you doing? That is the way we always relate to God when, we, when we're not just truly at rest in His grace. Our hearts are crying out like, Oh God, God, you owe me. But when we understand justification, when we understand the goodness of His grace, when we understand that His greatness is magnified in our suffering, our hearts won't cry, God, you owe me. We're, our hearts are crying, God, you're with me. My God is with me. My God is with me. This whole thing is burning down. My village is burnt down. They slaughtered my husband. They killed my son. My God is with me. That's what it does. That's the power of grace. That's the power of the gospel. It's what it does in you and I. Constantly available to us, we have access. We have unprecedented access for the pain and the tragedy that is the paradox of our lives. 
And so the joyfulness of our hearts and the stillness of our soul, it's in Christian faith, it's not a byproduct of ignoring circumstances or denying them or sugarcoating them or being stoic about them. We can stare right at them because our God gives us grace to empower us and strengthen us through them. And so this text, it's sobering and it's satisfying. It's sobering because it says all of us at some point are going to suffer and it's satisfying because our God will strengthen us when we do. And so when you get to verses 3 and 5, there's a chain reaction that starts to go off. And the chain reaction is this. This is what su suffering sets off a chain reaction in your life. It can, it can be a chain reaction that's not great, or it can be the one that Paul just shows right here. Here's what God's grace does. Here's the chain reaction of suffering. Perseverance, character, hope. This is the chain reaction in verses 3 to 5. Here's what happens. He starts unboxing it. Right? Perseverance it's single-mindedness. It could be translated that way when he's like, per suffering produces perseverance. It produces a single-mindedness. It produces a focus. There, it, the first thing that happens when suffering hits the life of those resting in grace, here's what it does, is it will cause us to realign our priorities. That's what, per that's what perseverance is. It's a single-minded focus. It's like, I got to realign i got to avail myself of this access. That's the point, right? The context is access. You have access, so when it hits the fan, what are you going to do? And the answer is, sometimes we avail of ourselves of the access and we go to God, or it hits the fan and we don't avail of our ourselves of our access and we go after some little mini-God, and there's a different chain reaction that doesn't look like this one. This chain reaction ends in hope. If you avail yourself of the access of God, even though everything is on fire, it is going to end in hope. But if you don't avail yourself of the access that's in God, that chain reaction is leading, some, is leading to a dark place. So after the perseverance, the single-minded focus is character. And now, we think of it, again, in English terms, in terms of character, like, ah, oh, person of character. That is true, but there's more here. This, this word could be also translated in, in the Greek. It could be translated testedness. The image of, the image, it, what Paul's trying to convey is, Someone who's been tested through something. So when it's playoff times and, 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 and it, it gets to, you know, World Series, Stanley Cup, Super Bowl, there's experienced players who are tested and there's rookies. And the rookies keep trying to tell themselves, it's just like every other game, it's just like every other game, it's just like every other game. And what do all the coaches say to the rookies? Hey, relax, it's just like every other game. Is it like every other game? It's the Super Bowl. It's not like every other game. Relax. It's like every other game. Is it like every other game? If you lose the Stanley Cup coach, are you going to just go back to the locker room and relate to that loss? Like, no, no, no. It's not like every other game. So what happens is those who have character and, and the image Paul wants to get is testedness. They've been through stuff. They know how to relate to the pressure. And they relate to the pressure differently than those who have never had to relate to the pressure. So Paul says, you know what? Your perseverance, the single-minded focus of availing yourself of access because of the grace of God and falling on your face before the God of grace, the King, the King who has given you his grace, who's not at war with you anymore, who says, come on in. You avail yourself of that, and that is going to produce a testedness in your life. That you are going to relate to your suffering not like everybody else that's relating to the suffering. It's going to be absolutely different. You, are going to, you, you might get sick 
and have to struggle with disease in your, in your life or your body or the body of a person that you love or a breakdown of a relationship or a family drama or a business thing that goes sideways. All of us are going to have these things in this world to have to contend with. But we, by the grace of God, have the access to relate to them completely differently. Tremendous peace. And what does it end in? It ends in hope. Confident certainty by the access that we have in God that our confident certainty that our life is in his hands. Not, con- not silver lining theology that's like, well, all I have to do is, is pull all the right levers and push all the right buttons and um, pray and read my Bible and meditate and then trust in God and then I'll be a tested person and then the situation's going to work out. If, you've, if you read the Bible, you'll find many times God has no problem letting situations burn to the ground because he is a God who specializes in resurrection. And so we don't even need to have it. You, we are liberated from having a silver lining theology. The freedom is so deep. What Paul is getting at here for this church in Rome. Remember Rome? Not a great place to be a Christian in the first century. Remember that place? Paul is trying to get them to see, guys, this, nothing can go well and you will have a confident certainty that transcends these circumstances. There will be a peace in your heart that will quiet your anxiety. See, is, is Jesus a lousy counselor or the wonderful counselor? Jesus said crazy things like, don't worry and be anxious for nothing. Like, Jesus said, don't worry, and Paul wrote things like, be anxious for nothing. Are they lousy counselors or do they know something? Are they trying to get us to tap into something and avail ourselves of something? This is what they're trying to do. Say, we got it. The only freedom and liberation available for you in a world that at any point something can go sideways is to have confident certainty that your life is in the hands of God. And so that is the place that this chain reaction takes us. It takes us to this hope. Notice that, notice that maturity, Christian maturity, right, which is this confident hope, which all of us, you know, I'm not preaching down to you. I'm preaching to myself, which is why I'm yelling so loudly, because I need this. You see, maturity, it begins with mar- marveling. Do you see that? It begins with availing yourself of the access. It begins with the focus, with the perseverance. So maturity begins with marveling. Christian maturity begins with marveling. And Christian maturity is fostered through meditation. It starts with marveling and it's fostered through with meditation. It's a constant recalibrating of our hearts and our minds and our souls. You consider, it, that's why he says hope does not disappoint. Right? It's, it, you think about meditation like the gymnasium of the soul. It's where your soul goes to work out and find its strength in God. Is in the quietness of meditation and of marveling. It's not doing things. It's reflecting in whose hands your life is actually in. You know, you consider the... the the, uh, we've got the election happening next month, and we've got the vote, um, votes open here just down the hallway. Sorry, not, I meant to say next week. Uh, and we've got the, the voting station down the hallway there. And if you've been, you read the articles, you, you listen to the tone of the debates, the last debate there, you watch it. And the tone is always, around election seasons, is always sound the alarms. You know, sound the alarms. A vote for candidate A is your only hope of salvation and a vote for candidate B will surely unleash the apocalypse on an unsuspecting Canada. Like this is, the tone of the debates is always this heightened sense of, guys, the future's at stake. 
Every election cycle is the same thing. The future is at stake. Well, in one sense, the future is at stake, but you know, in an ultimate sense, my future is absolutely not at stake. I don't watch the debates like, oh my goodness, I'm so worried right now because my life is in one of your four hands. No, it isn't. You're, if you get elected into office, you're going to have a, a tremendous amount of responsibilities. I will be expecting a great many things from you, but the one thing I will not be expecting from you is to bring peace to my heart, quietness to my soul, and a sense of security about my, my future. That is above your pay grade. Like the, the throne is well occupied. The person's preeminent shoulders on which my hope on those things sits. So I have to go to the polls just like you and be responsible and do my homework and cast my vote like we all will. But what Paul is getting at in here is in this text is there is nothing going on in our lives that could steal the confident certainty when our hearts recalibrate and rest in the goodness of, of God's love and, uh, for us. And so when you get to verses 7 and 8, you get to the scandal of grace where he says, who would die for a wicked person? You can barely find somebody to die for a good person. Would you go into a hostage situation and leave your family and your children and everybody that you love and just give your life up for a, a, a hostage you know, on, in a convenience store down on, on your street, who is probably a very nice person, they're probably a good, a decent citizen, law-abiding citizen, they're a good person. Would you just go in and trade your life and just, you know, kiss your friends and your, or, or your spouse and be like, love you guys, but I'm going to go give my life? Would you do that? Maybe you would. Not many of us would. How about uh, taking the death penalty for somebody in the maximum security in, in Kingston? who's definitely there because they definitely did. They're definitely guilty. But you're going to leave your, the comfort of your home and all the, all the nice things that over the years you accumulated to, to put there to make it feel like home for you. And you're going to leave your friends and your family and you're going to leave everything. You're going to just leave it all for this person in Kingston Penitentiary who's there because they deserve to be there. You're going to leave it all. You're going to do that? That's verses 7 and 8. It's like, that's what our king did. He left the comfort of heaven. He left everything. He did it all. And he did it for us. It's a scandalous, scandalous levels of grace. It's incredible. And that's why in verses 9 and 10, Paul answers the rhetorical question that he's anticipating the readers to be asking. If I'm a sinner and I need to be justified by grace, how can I have any assurance that in the end I'm going to actually be with God? How do I know I'm going to make it? And that's why Paul goes on to say, if God loved you enough to justify you, if he loved you enough to give you a verdict of not guilty when you were his enemy, how much more will he save you and keep you now that you're his child? And so this is the glory, the glorious gift of what we have been given. In verse 11, as I close, he goes on to say, more than that, we rejoice because we have reconciliation. We have reconciliation at the cross. God placed all of, the, all of your punishment on himself. He's not reserving any punishment for you. He poured all of his wrath out on Jesus. He's not reserving any of his wrath for you. See, we have reconciliation. You know, you can forgive a person, but forgiveness uh, is different than reconciliation because you can forgive a person and never invite them into your home again and have truly forgiven them. Because forgiveness is saying, I'm forgiving you of what you owe me. Reconciliation is saying, I want to have a relationship and I want you close to me. 
And what we get here in this gift of justification is that God is not simply saying, you're free to go. Our God, by his great grace, is saying, you're welcome to come. The same grace that rescued you, keeps you. The God who made a way for you to enjoy eternity with him, he will get you there. Let's pray.